There were four people in a small plane. The pilot, a scientist who some people said was the smartest man in the world, a Christian pastor, and a Boy Scout. The, suddenly the engines start coughing and sputtering. Uh, and the pilot leaves the cockpit, comes out to the cabin, and makes this announcement. This plane is going down. There's nothing I can do to prevent it. And what's more, we have four people on this plane and three parachutes. Since this is my plane and these are my parachutes, I'm taking one. With that, he strapped on the parachute and he jumped out of the plane. Then the scientist who... Uh, some people said, including him, uh, was the smartest man in the world. He said, I'm the smartest man in the world, and people need the contributions that I'm going to make. Uh, so uh, I must take one of these parachutes. With that, it, he straps it on, and he jumps out of the plane. The minister says to the Boy Scout, he says, young man, uh, I've lived much of my life already, and I've had a good life. I've been blessed. I've done very much of what I wanted to do and needed to do. And you are so young, you have your whole life ahead of you. You need to take the last parachute. The Boy Scout says, relax, Pastor. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of this plane with my backpack on his back. When Christian Herter was the governor of Massachusetts, he was running for a re-election for a second term in office. And it was campaign season, and he had had a very busy morning campaigning, and he arrived at a church barbecue. It was late afternoon, and he was beyond hungry. He was famished. Uh, as the governor moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman serving the chicken. She put a piece of chicken on his plate and turned to the next person in line. Excuse me, said Governor Herter. Do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? She says, sorry, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm starved, the governor said. Sorry, one piece of chicken uh, per person. Well, the governor was usually kind of a modest and unassuming man, but he decided that this time he would throw his weight around a little bit. He asked, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. The woman said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Move it along, mister. <laughs> Sometimes in life it's possible to get an overblown idea of our own importance. Sometimes uh, we can get a little bit too puffed up. C.S. Lewis may have been uh, the greatest Christian writer of the 20th century, and Lewis wrote this. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And isn't that true? Uh, pride is at the root of every sin. When we decide that we know better how we should live than God knows, then pride leads to sins. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. Luke 
One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet, at Jesus' knees, and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This man Simon, who Jesus had nicknamed Peter, which means rock, this man Simon was a commercial fisherman. He made a living as a fisherman. Uh, and he and his companions had fished all night and had caught nothing. Nothing. All night. Which, if you have worked hard fishing all night and caught nothing, that's pretty much a downer, isn't it? But Jesus, who was not a stranger to Simon Peter at this point, used Peter's boat as a platform to teach from. He sat at he sat in Peter's fishing boat and asked him to pilot the boat a few feet from shore where Jesus taught the crowd that had gathered on the shoreline. When he had finished teaching, Jesus instructed Simon, move out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Peter told him, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when Peter let down the nets... The fishing nets, what happens next, goes beyond all his wildest dreams. How many of you like fishing? I do. Several times in my life I've had dreams about fishing, and in these dreams I will typically catch one enormous fish after another, fish as long as your leg, fish even larger, just one after another. What happens in real life for Simon Peter is very much like a fisherman's wildest dream. A catch of fish so huge the, huge the nets begin breaking. A catch of fish so huge that two fishing boats nearly sink. Just can you see the fish flopping around in these boats? Can you see the look of astonishment on the fishermen's faces after they fished all night and caught nothing? And in one cast of the nets, they, ca they catch maybe a month's worth of fish, maybe more for a commercial fisherman. But what has happened here goes beyond fishing far above fishing. Something clicks in Peter's mind. The light bulb goes up, off. Uh, they fished all night and caught nothing, zero, nada, not a fish. And then when Jesus tells him to let the nets out one more time, he catches two boatloads of fish, a miraculous catch of fish. And Peter has this moment of insight, recognition, clarity, he realizes that he is in the presence of somebody far above himself. He realizes that he is in the presence of someone of immense power and glory. And he falls to his, knee, he falls to his knees at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, 
I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy. And I don't deserve to be in your presence. That is the upshot of what he's saying. In the blazing light of Jesus' power and glory and divinity, Peter sees his own flaws and his utter brokenness. Peter becomes acutely aware of his own flaws. His sinfulness becomes so conspicuous he can hardly stand it. Maybe you've been at that point at some place in your life when you've sinned and you know you've blown it royally. He can hardly bear the weight of his sin. He can't stand it and he says, Lord, please leave me. I can hardly bear to be in your presence because I'm so sinful. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing because Peter has humbled himself before God in the flesh He hits the ground saying, I'm not worthy. He is humbled and he is repentant. The Bible says this in Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. In a rare moment of insight, Oscar Wilde wrote, the highest moment in a man's career may be the hour when he kneels in the dust and beats upon his breast and tells all the sins of his life. The reality is that we're all sinners, we're all sinners, we're all flawed. We're all terribly in need of God's mercy. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. We are all desperate sinners knocking on God's door crying out pleading for forgiveness. So we have to realize it. We need to know our plight. You remember the Pharisee that Jesus talked about in his parable, the Pharisee who prayed about himself, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like a sinner like everybody else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give give you a tenth of all my income. He stands as the ultimate example of somebody who just doesn't get it. We all have to recognize that we're sinners in need of God's mercy. When I was much younger, I spent the summer working in a pottery shop where we made bowls and pitchers. We would pour a liquid ceramic into a mold, and when the mixture had set for a while and it become kind of solid, we'd open the mold and out would come a soft pitcher. Uh, it would have a seam on it, and very often there would be some flaws, little flaws, little holes in it. Uh, the seam would need to be scraped off, and all the holes would need to be patched and uh, made smooth. Uh, There were almost always small flaws in these pitchers, but then we'd put the pitcher in this extremely hot oven, a furnace, where they would be hardened. Well, the bowls and pitchers were all flawed. They could all be shaped and fixed as long as they were soft and moldable and pliable. But after they had set for too long and hardened, they had to be thrown away because we could no longer fix them. People are much the same. As long as we are humble, soft, and pliable before God, God can work on us, mold us, shape us. The words of the hymn tell the story very well. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded, and still. We need to be, we have to be, soft before God, humble before him, yielded, entirely willing to have him remove our defects of character. It's not the end of the world to be flawed. We all are, as long as you're willing to have your flaws corrected by God. If you're willing to be molded and shaped, the rough edges sanded down, the holes patched. 
Paul wrote, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The prophet Isaiah, when he saw a vision of a holy God, cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. And in our text today, Peter falls to, a knee, to his knees and makes this declaration, Depart from me, Lord. I am too sinful to be in your presence. Not only is humility the right posture to take before God, it's also the best posture to take before the world. When people see us as constantly judging them before they've ever felt any love from us, we turn them off of Christ in the church. It's hard to love people when you're constantly judging them. We're all broken sinners desperately in need of grace. And when we remember that, that makes Christ and the church much more attractive to people who need him. And people do need the Lord. What we were singing is true. People need the Lord. And when, when we take a humble posture before people, we make Jesus more attractive to them. I read about a man named Ted. Ted was once the sound man for the Grateful Dead, the, the rock group. He had never gone to church and had no interest in God, his sister, however, was a Christian who lived in a different state. She begged him to check out a church that was near him. Well, one day, he finally gives in and shows up. Eventually, he volunteers to help run sound for the church. At a meeting one day, he announced to everybody he didn't believe anything that the church taught. Well, the minister asks him, well, uh, what is it that keeps you coming then? He got a little bit choked up, and he says, Never felt love like this before. Ted continued coming to church even though he didn't believe the things that were being taught. Four months later, he accepted the truth. Maybe it would be better to say he accepted the one who is the truth, Jesus. This comes from the church's minister. As I write this, it's 10 months after Ted first showed up. He is currently overseas on a mission trip where he is loving people and hoping they'll come to know the truth that can set them free. The Bible teaches that we are to make the truth about Christ attractive. We need to do everything we can to allow God to use us to draw people closer to him. We have to humble ourselves like Simon Peter did for the sake of, first, for the sake of our relationship with God, for the sake of our relationships with one another, and to help our relationships, our relationships with people who don't know Jesus. I think it's also essential that we take a look at how Jesus responds to Peter's humble confession. Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus says two things in response to Peter. First of all, he says, don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. God responds to people who humble themselves and repent with grace. This is his constant posture toward the penitent. D.L. Moody rightly said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Jesus says to Peter, essentially, I've got you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. I am merciful. I am full of grace toward you. You don't have to be afraid in my presence. 
Hear these words of comfort from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God has always been full of grace and compassion towards sinners who repent. And that means something for us. You have not done anything that will put you beyond the scope of God's grace. He will forgive anything that you've ever done if you come to him in faith and repentance. Again, the psalm says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he, has he removed our transgressions from us. And that's good news. That's the kind of merciful God that we serve. The devil may want you to believe that God could never forgive the worst things you've ever done. But God is rich in mercy. His word says that you can believe it. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jesus said two things to Simon Peter. First of all, he says, don't be afraid. Then he says, from now on. From now on, you will catch men. Jesus offers forgiveness for past sins and hope, meaning, and purpose for the future. Forgiveness for the past hope, purpose, and meaning for the future. From now on, you will catch men. I have a vision for your future. In other words, your future has not been canceled out by your sins, and that's big. Your future has not been canceled out by your past sins. That's good news. He, God intends to use Simon Peter in a powerful way in the future, even though at this point in his life, Peter is a guy who constantly puts his foot in his mouth. He acts and speaks before he thinks. He engages his mouth before he engages his brain uh, over and over again. And so Jesus gives him the nickname Rock. I intend to make you into a rock for God and for the kingdom. And the same is true of us. God has a plan for each of our lives. God has a plan for you. He knows your name. The old saying is true. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You believe that? Believe it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You haven't done anything that puts you beyond the scope of God's grace. Nothing in your past cancels out the future that God has planned for you. God truly loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We simply have to humble ourselves before God, put our lives in his hands, and he's going to do something amazing. Some missionary, uh, Hudson Taylor, was scheduled to speak at a large church uh, one Sunday in Melbourne, Australia. Well, a church, a church leader introduced the missionary in eloquent and glowing terms. He tells the large congregation all that Taylor has accomplished in China, then presented him as our illustrious guest. Taylor stood quietly for a moment, and he opened his message by saying this, Dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious master. That's the spirit. I am a little servant of an illustrious master. And if you'll take that posture, God's going to do amazing things in your life. Maybe today you're at a place where you, you are tired of bowing at the altar of I, me, mine, and myself. You're tired of living for yourself 
and you want a better way of living, well, you can be sure that God's ready to receive you if that's where you are. Uh, if you have a need on your heart this morning, if you realize you need Jesus, you want to put your faith in him, you want to uh, publicly confess his name, if you want to repent of your sins, wh whatever's on your heart today, you can just uh, let this church family know. Uh, let's stand and encourage each other. Let's sing together.